So today is building God's kingdom one relationship at a time number 10. This will be my last uh, part of that series. How many of you got something out of this series as you listen to it? Oh, good. You're just making me feel so good. <laughs> I got something out of it again because you, we have to be reminded. So put up Galatians uh, 5.14. For the whole law concerning human relationships is complied with in the one precept. You shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. So we've been talking about this one law that governs relationships. We've talked about how to walk in love. We've talked about what love is. We found out what the opposite of love is. And the opposite of love is selfishness. And every relationship that has ever deteriorated or broken up is caused from selfishness. Either one or, or both people in that relationship has some strongholds of selfishness in their lives. So we've talked about some of the fruit of selfishness. We've talked about unforgiveness. We've talked about aggravation and not allowing yourself to get aggravated. We've talked about criticism. We've talked about um, not putting demands on other people to meet your needs. All of these are, uh, we've just taken it step by step and looked practically at how we can apply what the Word of God says in order to have this kind of love that Galatians 5.14 talks about. The love that is the law. You know, if you break a law, you couldn't get hurt. If you break the law of gravity, you could get hurt. Probably will get hurt. So uh, if you drive on the wrong side of the road and meet somebody driving on their side of the road, you could get hurt because there could be a collision. So it's for your our own good to learn about the law of love. So that's what we've been doing for 10 sessions. This will uh, be the 10th one. So this one, I saved this one for the last because uh, to me, Probably this is the one I had to battle with the very most. Uh, my temperament and just everything about me. And probably uh, I kind of got it through a generational line too. And this, uh, so today we're going to talk about self-pity. Aren't you excited? <laughs> I shared uh, a session on self-pity at a women's conference once and a lady came up to me and she said she said ah, I needed to hear that so bad she said I had a bad case of ingrown eyeballs <laughs> and so when she said that I thought you know and actually that's what I named my chapter in my book ingrown eyeballs because that's basically what it is all about looking at me it's all about me um, there is a, a self-pity anthem that I heard a long time ago. And uh, some of you remember this. It's gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression. Excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. So you might, some of you may not be old enough to remember that, but but the, that was a television program, Hee Haw. 
And they would, they would lament over their life. Oh my goodness, life was so bad. And so uh, that's kind of an anthem for self-pity. That's what self-pity is. It's negativity. It's, it's like something, every, there could be a hundred things going right, but if there's two things going wrong, you're going to focus on the two things going wrong. And it's going to breed self-pity. And the very ground that nourishes self-pity is selfishness. So um, a description of self-pity is this. The feeling of grief or pain awakened by the misfortunes or sorrows that occur in one's own life as a result of an undue regard for one's own interest or an overdue and exclusive care for one's own comfort and pleasure with little regard for the happiness and often the rights of others. It is the God-given compassion that we should have for others turned inward towards ourselves. Now, most of you know that on January the 1st of this year, my pastor Charlie, my husband, went to heaven. He did not have my permission, but he went anyway. And I, I had never, ever had to deal with grief. And uh, I was unprepared for the pain. I, people said, you know, grief is painful. I thought, yeah, you know, of course it is. But when I experienced it, it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was so painful. And uh, there was days that I felt like I couldn't hardly even breathe. I, I would be so overwhelmed with grief. And all I wanted to do was just get in bed, cover up my head, and cry all day long. And I thought, what am I going to do? This is awful. Uh, I didn't feel like I could function. And I, I cried out to the Lord because I, what I saw was this tendency to have self-pity was, was just like a, a demonic force just sitting there just leering at me, just, say, just inviting me to come into the pit of self-pity. And I, I had been there before and I don't like it. So uh, the Holy Spirit began to impress on me to do something every time I would have those days. And at first there was a lot of them. And what the Holy Spirit impressed me to do was to think of somebody in the congregation that I needed to call to encourage and pray for. So I would make a list and I would start calling people and praying for them on the phone. And lo and behold, when I would do that, the pain would leave, totally leave. The joy of the Lord would be back, be able to function that day. And I went through a period of time where I had to do that regularly. And I found that that was one of the antidotes for staying out of self-pity. And it, it has healing power to it. When you, your compassion flows out of you to someone else instead of keeping your eyes on yourself. But I hadn't always been that way. Years ago, whenever this would be probably in the early 70s, 1970s when we were on the ranch 
uh, down at Perryton. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I, I had to fight self I actually didn't fight it. I invited it, self-pity. I felt like I had a right. You know, there's several reasons why I had a right to feel sorry for myself. So I, you know, I was just, I was used to it. And I, uh, one, one day, it was early in the morning, and I came. And in this dream, I was standing uh, in a pasture area, and uh, it, there was this slimy, stinky stuff all around me. So you can imagine kind of what it was, except it was slimy. And uh, I was standing there looking at that slime, and I heard this voice say, pick some of it up. And so I reached down and I picked it up, and this slime was just dripping from my hands. And uh, stinking slime. And I was standing there, and I heard this voice say, rub your face in it. And, I and so in the dream, I started to bring it up to my face <laughs> because it was hypnotic. The voice was hypnotic. And as I started to bring it to my face to rub my face in it, I said, no, I don't have to. And I flung it down and I woke up. And I thought, well, that was a strange dream. And uh, the Holy Spirit began to interpret it for me. And he said, what you saw in that dream was self-pity. It is every bit as stinking and rotten and slimy as what you saw in your dream. To me, that's the way I see self-pity. And he said, when you have the opportunity to have self-pity in your life, fling it away from you just as forcibly as you did in the dream. Because you see, the devil wants you to waller in self-pity. Do you have to waller in self-pity? We do not have to waller in self-pity. And so later I learned why God hates self-pity so much. He hates self-pity because a person cannot be in self-pity and faith at the same time. And Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So faith is important in pleasing God. And also, uh, in Ephesians, the uh, sixth chapter the 16th verse, it talks about how we have a, a covering or a shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. So, so if we have self-pity, then we, can't have, we don't have faith at the same time. You cannot feel sorry for yourself and be believing God at the same time. It just doesn't work together. You have to get rid of self-pity to get over into faith, which is the shield of shield that will keep the fiery darts of the enemy from attacking you and trying to take you down. So that's why God hates self-pity so much because it makes you vulnerable to the devil. He, it pleases him when you keep your shield of faith up. So... Um, 
Self-pity will not accomplish anything in your life that you need. But let me tell you, faith and faith alone will answer your needs. Whatever your need is, if you can, if you can release your faith, God will see that you'll get it. So things can change when you get in faith. But if you're wallowing in self-pity, nothing's going to change. And the sad part about it is it's going to affect your destiny. Now, the children of Israel, I want to uh, look at Numbers 21.4. And uh, before I do that, I, just, I had written down a, a statement here I want to I relate to you. It's not circumstances or mistreatment that triggers self-pity. It's your attitude. You may not be able to control what happens to you, but you are in charge of your attitude. So the children of Israel, you know, uh, you know the story. We won't do a lot of backstory, but they were slaves in Egypt. God uh, revealed himself. They didn't really know God very much at that time. God revealed himself with signs, wonders, miracles, and with a mighty hand, he delivered them out, out of slavery, took them across the Red Sea, and uh, they started towards the promised land that God had said, I'm, give, I'm taking you to a promised land where it's going to be abundance. I mean, it's beyond your wildest dreams. So in Numbers 21.4, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient, depressed, and much discouraged because of the trials of the way. Now we all are going to have trials. And some of our situations are not going to be perfect as we're headed towards our promised land. You know, God is, is not one that just from one place to another. We have a journey that we take. And during that journey, we have an adversary that would like to, like to keep us from walking into our destiny. And so the children of Israel were that way. And, uh, and then in Numbers 11, 1, it says, And the people grumbled and deployed there's hard, hardships which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. See, God had a plan for the children of Israel. He, he, was, he wanted them to be excited. And they were headed towards the promised land. Well, he provided for them the whole way. But they still grumbled and complained. It was their stinking, rotten attitude that kept them out of the land. It wasn't the circumstances that kept them out of the promised land. You know, I, in uh, Psalms 81, I was just reading that. And um, uh, let me see, where is it? Starting with verse 13. This is God talking. And he said, oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. See, they were discouraged. They were, ha- they were having a pity party, truthfully. Spe- if, I, if they would have just listened, 
Speedily then I would have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. See, God was saying all this time, I wanted to fight for them. I wanted to be their champion. But they wouldn't have any part of me. <clears throat> Had Israel listened to me in Egypt, then those who hated the Lord would have come cringing before him, Israel. And their defeat would have lasted forever, all their enemies. Uh, and then God would feed Israel now also with the finest of wheat and with honey out of the rock would I satisfy you. He was say, he was said, I would take care of your enemies. I would provide for your needs. But your attitude stopped it. Because of your rotten attitude, it stopped what I was ready to do for you and wanted to do for you. And so I've jotted down some attitudes that breed self-pity. Hopefully nobody here has these attitudes. But I had some of them. And you know, you, you have to watch it. It'll creep up on you if you don't watch it. It's awful if I have to suffer in any way before my prayers are answered or I reach my goal. It's just awful. Awful if I have to wait. That takes patience, and that's awful. It's awful if I have to put forth any effort to bring about changes. For example, if I have to forgive or walk in love or go the second mile. That's awful. No one or nothing has the right to inconvenience me. My needs and my desires must be met in order for me to be happy. It's awful if I'm not happy. Nobody knows, nobody cares, or is helping me. Someone or something else is to blame, not me, and there is nothing I can do about it. All of those attitudes breed self-pity. And the truth is, we can, we can sense when somebody is in self-pity. It's a stinking, rotten attitude. You have that picture handy? Uh, just, just so we can have a visual. Oh, there it is. This is my favorite skunk. <laughs> so uh, several years ago, Brad and Tammy uh, had two dogs. One of them's name was Balto, and one was named Molly. And when they come to my house, they bring their dogs. And so, uh, you know, I'm not an, a dog person, and I am definitely not an indoor dog person, but whenever they come, I still love them, so I love their dogs or tolerate them. And so at that time, now Balto and Molly are both gone, but, uh, so this was several years ago. But um, that evening when they were there, we heard this ruckus outside. And so Tammy, we, the dogs, both of the dogs were outside. So Tammy ran to the, the door, flung the door open. And when she flung the door open, we knew what the ruckus had been about. Balto and Molly had found the skunk. And the skunk had found Balto and Molly. And they had a uh, head-to-tail head confrontation, all I can say. And it permeated the atmosphere. 
I mean, you could, the minute the door opened, you could smell it. Well, here came in Balto and Molly. And they were reeking with the perfume that came forth from that animal. And that, in that, at that time, we had, a, had carpet on our living room floor. And so, of course, you know how dogs are. They started wallowing around. In the, and I mean, that whole house started smelling like that skunk. Brad rushed them to the bathtub and, and washed them. And, uh, but it was, it was too late. That smell had permeated the whole house. And for days and weeks, and I don't know how long afterwards, we still had that smell in our house. I lit candles. I squirt, squirted stuff. I did everything I knew. But it was so potent that it, it colored the atmosphere with that stinking attitude. And that's the way self-pity is. You can't hide it. It stinks. People smell it. I mean, not literally, but they know. It colors. You know, I've had... Uh, my mother was, had a tendency to be depressed. And let me just say this. Uh, this is where we're leading. Self-pity is the root cause of depression. And I, I just want to read you something that... Um, that I got from uh, Carolyn Leaf. Um, she was a, um, had researched the human brain, and she had written a book called Who Switched Off My Brain? And she said this, um, many in the medical profession have detected a chemical imbalance in the brains of those who are suffering from depression. Now, we all have heard of that, Right? Therefore, they believe the solution is to give the patient a drug that will correct the chemical distortion. But this is what she goes on to write. Every thought has a corresponding electrochemical reaction in your brain. When you think, chemicals course through your body in magnificently complex electrochemical feedback loops. Try to say that two times. When you feel happy, your brain has released specific types of chemicals or neurotransmitters called endorphins or feel-good chemicals. The brain releases endorphins in response to pleasurable thoughts. But when you feel sad, afraid, angry, or hopeless, your brain releases different types of chemicals. Depending on whether or not your emotions are toxic to your body, the chemicals will either help you or harm you. Research shows that around 87% of illnesses can be attributed to your thought life, whereas approximately 13% to genetics and environment. She further declares that researchers have conceded for years that the role of fear, anger, depression, anxiety, and a variety of other emotions play a role in causing mental and physical health problems. The medical field's solution to this problem has been to develop pharmaceutical drugs aimed at trying to change the brain's chemistry to make us feel good. And then she says this, we don't need any more of their happy pills. 
What we need are coping strategies to help us avoid the problems before they come up and to detox our minds and bodies of the toxic thoughts that are already causing damage. The good news is that these coping strategies are readily available, quickly accessible. You don't have to travel far to find them. You, they don't cost a fortune. They begin with a thought and your reaction to the thoughts that go on inside your head. So when you think thoughts of self-pity, the result of that is depression. Depression comes from wrong thinking. And um, I'm reminded of a time that um, I was going through a, a fight of depression. It was several years ago. We'd been in the ministry a while. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to go to Elijah and talk about how he got depressed right after his big victory and everything, but I don't think I'm going to have time. So I'll just mention this, that the one thing as a minister we have to watch is that when you have a great service and, and maybe uh, lots of uh, signs or wonders or people being helped, you better watch out on Monday. <laughs> because uh, there is a letdown and the devil will try to come and depress you. And that's what happened to Elijah. I mean, he, you know, he ran from, from Jezebel after he'd killed 450 prophets. But he ran because he was afraid of this woman that says, you know, you remember those prophets you killed? You're going to look like that tomorrow. And he ran. It says when he saw that, he ran. And he got depressed. And then he said, oh, God, oh, God, I might as well die. Is that depression or what? So I was going through a time like that early on in our ministry. And, uh, it, you know, I... Some of these things I had to learn the hard way. Nobody taught me what to do. And so I was depressed. And I was through this depressing time. And depression is kind of like you have your feet in quicksand. And you feel like you can't get out yourself. Because it's just sucking you down and down and down and down. And I was feeling this. And I, finally I went to the Lord. And I said, God, what am I going to do about this? You know, I can't function this way. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, David encouraged himself in the Lord. And I thought, are you telling me that I'm going to have to do something? I'm going to have to encourage myself in the Lord? And, uh, you know, I looked up some of the things that David said, and he said, you know, he said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Trust in the Lord, who will be the health of your countenance. And we, we know that uh, when he encouraged himself in the Lord was when the enemy came and stole all, the, all that they owned there at Zigleg and got all their wives and their kids and everybody was crying and bawling and squalling. And David, he bawled and squalled for a little bit. And then he encouraged himself in the Lord. So during that time, I, I thought, oh, okay. <sighs> I guess I'm going to have to do something. And then uh, 
I heard the Lord say, did you think you could move up to a higher level spiritually and not be contested by the adversary? And that reminded me of Matthew 11, 12. That says, from the days of John the Baptist until the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violent assault. And violent men or women seize it by force as a precious prize. A share in the heavenly kingdom is sought with most ardent zeal and intense exertion. And I thought, ah, that means I'm going to have to ex have some exertion to get out of this. I'm going to have to do something that I don't feel like doing. And this is, uh, this is uh, then during that time, uh, I was talking to a friend and she said this to me. She said, when you lose your joy and get depressed, you're going to have to make yourself save yourself. Sometimes we want somebody else to save us. But we have to save ourselves. And then this is the word that the Lord gave me a little bit after that. He said, if you bow your knee to discouragement, despair or depression, you have bowed your knee to the God of this world who can control circumstances. However, if you refuse to bow your knee to discouragement, you have bowed and submitted yourself to me, the almighty God of the universe, who has the power to overcome all circumstances. You cannot control circumstances, but you can choose who you bow your knee to. So one day I was, I was driving from church to the house, and I had really had a lot of victory over, you know, I finally got out of that pit. But I was driving home, and I could feel that heavy depression come back on me. And I recognized it. And at that very moment, I had a glimpse of my mother. I saw my mother sitting depressed. She was depressed most of her life. I don't know why. Um, I could probably suspect why, but she was, very, she was a depressed person, and she wasn't very easy to get along with. I love you, Mom. Uh, but... Uh, you know, she was, she was a little hard to get along with. And I saw my mother with that depression on her, and I thought, oh, my goodness. I think I'm dealing with the spirit of depression that came through my mother. And so I just said, well, you spirit of depression, I address you in the name of Jesus, and I command you to get out of my life. And when I said that, I felt a load. I felt something just lift off my shoulders. And I thought, I have not had to deal. Now, now it stands off in the shadows. And it would come if I allow myself to get in self-pity. If I open the door, it's going to come back. That's for sure. But I know not to open the door. That's why when af after pastor passed away, I had to guard myself because I felt so vulnerable and I did not want to deal with what comes from depression and self-pity. So I would stop it before it had a chance. And I can tell you this. Yes, I have sad days. Yes, there's still pain. 
but I have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I, I, I am dedicated to keeping that joy in my life, to fostering that joy in my life. Because when you have joy, you have peace. And I'm not going to give up my peace. Not for anything or anybody. But you do have to fight for it. So, uh, I, I just want to kind of close. Uh, I'm not going to take a whole lot more time. But uh, in, in Paul's life, in 2 Corinthians 11, start with verse 23. I just want to read 23 through 28. If you think you have it bad, I'm going to read this to you. And they ministering servants of the Lord, the Messiah, are they ministering, he's talking about somebody else there, are they the ministering servants of Christ the Messiah? I'm talking like one beside myself, but I am more. With far more extensive and abundant labors, far more imprisonments, beaten with countless stripes, and frequently at the point of death, Five times I received from the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, but one, which is 39. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And this was like with the real stones. Uh, three times I have been aboard a ship wrecked at sea. A whole night and a day I've spent adrift on the deep. Three, many times on journeys, exposed to perils, and then he starts in on the perils. And it's like a peril here, a peril there, here, a peril there, a peril everywhere, a peril, peril. And so he has perils from the rivers, bandits from the, my own nation, from Gentiles, from the city and desert places, in the sea again. Perils from those posing as believers but destitute of Christian knowledge and piety. And the next verse. In toil and hardship, watching often through sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, Frequently driven to fasting by want in cold and exposure and lack of clothing. <clears throat> you know, the sleepless night and the lack of clothing, you know, that would do me in. And besides all those things that are without, there is the daily inescapable pressure of my care and anxiety for the churches. So if you think you had it bad, listen to that. But, but listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are hedged in and pressed on every side, troubled and oppressed in every way, but not cramped or crushed. Hallelujah. We suffer embarrassments and are perplexed and unable to find a way out, but not driven to despair. We are pursued, persecuted, and hard driven, but not deserted to stand alone. We are struck down to the ground, and never, but never struck out and destroyed. I mean, he, he said, you know, I don't care what happens. We're going to get the victory. We are going to have the victory. And then I like what he said in um, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, verse 4, 13, first of all. We have the same spirit of faith as he who wrote, I have believed and therefore have I spoken. We too believe and therefore we speak. Go to verse 16. Therefore, we do not become discouraged, utterly spiritless, exhausted, and wearied out through fear. Though our outer man is progressively decaying and wasting away, yet our inner man is being progressively renewed day after day. 
How? Verse 17. For listen to this, our light and momentary afflictions, this slight distress of the passing, passing hour, I would think, you know, all the things that we just read that he went through would not be slight distress. It would be a little bit of a heavy distress to me. But he calls it a light distress. It's even more and more abundantly preparing and producing and achieving for an everlasting weight of glory beyond all measure, excessively surpassing all comparisons and all calculations the amplified version has a lot of words a vast and transcendent glory and blessedness never to cease next verse since okay here's the way we do it since we consider remember i said faith and self-pity can't be in the same operate in your body or in your life at the same time this is the way he did it since we consider and look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are visible are temporal, subject to change, brief and fleeting. But the things that are invisible are deathless and everlasting. He didn't look at what was going on around him. He knew what God had promised him. And he kept his eyes on that. And I'm reminded of Jesus. Let me just uh, read to you, uh, just put up on the message uh, Hebrews 12, the Message Bible, starting, um, let's just read all the way through to 4. Now listen to this. Pastor Charlie has used this before. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers, because it's talking about that great cloud of witnesses. Pastor Charlie is one of those now. Who blazed the way. All these veterans are cheering us on. It means we'd better get on with it. Strip down. Start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished the race that we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. And he put up with a lot. The cross shame and whatever and now he's there in the place of honor right alongside of god so when you find yourself flagging in your faith go over that story again item by item that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls you think you have it bad look at what jesus went through look at what paul went through in this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you. To say nothing of what Jesus went through. All the bloodshed. So listen, don't feel sorry for yourself. We're going to end with that part of that scripture. So don't feel sorry for yourself. Learn how Jesus did it. Do it the way Paul did it. Do it the way Jesus did it. In Proverbs 15, 15, it says, All the days of the desponding and afflicted are made evil by anxious thoughts and forbid forebodings. But listen, he who has a glad heart has a continual feast regardless of circumstances. So in, uh, early on in our ministry, when I was fighting all this stuff that you know, we've talked about all through this series. 
and my relationships were suffering. And I was seeking God. I mean, for a long time, I thought it was somebody else's fault. And then God began to say, hey, you know, you might ought to look at yourself. I didn't really like looking at myself. But I can tell you the exact place that I was at. I was in the basement of our house, and I can tell you the exact spot that God downloaded to me the answer to relationships. And he called it to me a relationship commitment. And so that day began my journey. And uh, I wrote the book, The Secret to Healthy Relationships, based on uh, what I'd learned through this. But I have, I, I made up at that time, it's called Relationship Commitment. So if you put that up, start, uh, if you can, can you read that? Okay. This is what the Lord had me do. And this covers everything that we have covered in this series. So in order to have peace in my life and in every relationship, I make a quality decision with the help of the grace of God to commit to the following. So this is, the, see, the paradigm of your life has to change if you're going to change anything. So number one, I choose to put myself under God's law of love, meeting the needs of others and look out, looking out for their interests instead of my own. Trusting that God will look after my welfare because I believe what I sow, I will reap. I choose to be restrained and regulated by God's command and his will. That's number one. Number two, I choose to live creatively, refusing to criticize others even when I think I'm right and they are wrong. Instead, I will edify build up and encourage them out of a heart of love, affection, and goodwill and will welcome and receive them into my heart as God has welcomed me. Now, in this, in this uh, relationship commitment, I have the scriptures, as you can see up there. And I'll just, I'll just give you a heads up. When you walk out the door this morning, uh, the ushers will hand you a relationship commitment. Just saying. Number three, I will never put demands on another individual to meet my needs. I free everyone, my spouse included, from any obligation to make me happy, content, or satisfied. Instead, I will look to God to fulfill my desires. He has promised to meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Number four, I refuse to be offended at anyone or by anything. In spite of how I am treated or what anyone says to me, I will quickly forgive and let it drop immediately. I will resist the temptation to entertain the offense in my thoughts, my words, or my actions. Number five, I will never again feel sorry for myself. No matter what circumstances may come my way or how I am treated. Number six, it doesn't matter what type of adverse situations that I face. I will never again allow myself to become aggravated. And then at the end, I don't know if we have that on. Yeah, here we go. There's a place that you're going to get an opportunity to sign this and date it. And it says it's witnessed and notarized by the Holy Spirit. This is a legal contract that I made with God when I started this. Have I always been able to keep it? 
Not 100%, but I know when I miss it and I can go back to it. That's what this is all about. Can you do it on your own? Probably not. You're going to have to help, have the help of God. But he will grow you up as you make these decisions. If you don't make these decisions ahead of time, they're going to blindside you. And then you're going to have a repentance ceremony to go through. And, you know, it says here, uh, I always and I never and I refuse and all that. You say, how could I ever live that way? Well, I could have said, oh, whenever I feel like it, this is what I'm going to do. Well, that wouldn't be any different than what you're doing right now. So we make a decision, a quality decision ahead of time. And then once you've had that in place, then you have a guideline to follow. And a goal that you can actually reach someday. But if you don't have any guideline or any goals in your relationships, you're just going to do what comes natural. And our default is selfishness. So we have to learn to do things like Jesus did. Learn to do things like Paul did. And your life will change. Stand with me. So I, uh, you know, my, my desire in teaching this series is I believe this brings healing into the lives of people. Not just emotional healing, but that's really one of the great benefits. But even physical healing can come about as you take care of some of these things that are a detriment to your health. You can become healthier. But we want healthy relationships. We want to show God to the world. And so today we've ended it with self-pity because it's a big one. We've all been subject to it. If I had you, if I had you raise your hand, if you've ever been in self-pity, we probably would have 100%. Just thought it was something else. Refuse to look at it as self-pity. It has been our honor to offer this message today. If you would like to partner with us as we continue to bring the Word of God, we would ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Victory Center with a financial donation. You may do so today via the online giving portal at victorycenter.org. Thank you.